Hi, I'm Drew Barrios. This podcast is conversations with people about what it is to be a brown person in this city and our different narratives. What do I mean by brown? A person who is Latina, Latino, Latinx, Mexican, Central American, South American, Afro-Latino, or anyone who identifies as one. I'll also be including black, indigenous people of color from time to time. Fair warning, there's adult language and social injustice situations in this podcast. Now, I made this for everybody, from the brown folk who still don't know what an Afro-Latino is, to the white folk who don't know the difference between a salvi and a chapin. And if you don't know those words, you should definitely listen. This is Being Brown in L.A. All right, guys, welcome back again. This is Drew, and this is Being Brown in L.A. My guest today is Dr. Luis Garcia, educator, professor, muralist, artist, and a homie of mine from back in the day, which I know him as Louis. How are you, Louis? Doing all right, Andrew. Good to see you again uh, after all these years, you know. Tell me, uh, Louis, what do you do so currently i'm a professor of art education at sacramento state uh, but before that i was uh, an art educator in my former high school uh, thomas jefferson high school uh, and i taught there for 14 years and part of my teaching included engaging students in the community through art to improve the social uh, economic conditions of, of their immediate community. So uh, aside from that, I've also been an artist and muralist uh, for a long time. And so, you know, it's part of, I think, my overlapping uh, roles as an educator, as a scholar, and as an artist uh, that, that I really do what I do. And that's really what I do. Definitely. So you started as an artist or did you start as an educator? Uh, I started as an artist. Um, and so I think, you know, the unfortunate part about uh, attending a Title I school is that, you know, you, you, have, you have a limited amount of resources. And so a school, schools like Jefferson High School don't offer... Uh, uh, an abundant uh, uh, amount of art classes and so it wasn't until I, I went to Santa Monica Community College that I really started indulging myself into uh, the art uh, and artists that that I eventually became and tell me Louis, uh, where is Jefferson High School in case anybody who's listening doesn't know so Jefferson High School is specifically located on 41st and Central, um, I'm sorry, 41st and Hooper. Uh, it's in the Central uh, Avenue uh, Jazz District. Uh, it's in the 90011 zip code, which is Council District 9. Uh, Do you consider that like you know, South Central, city. right? Oh, yeah, of course. So so that is South Central, right? Um 
many folks refer to it as the east side uh, and there's a backstory to that um, and so you know it, I am originally from South Central and I also grew up on 45th and Avalon and so you know when I started teaching uh, I in particularly was interested in um, addressing gaps in art education that I myself experienced there as a student. It, it's rare because most people that go to university and you know they go to an art school or maybe they have some really fine training they ne they sort of never want to go back to where they came from to fix things because you know it's almost like that broken system that you're like look I'm not going to make a difference um, but you went back to the heart of where everything started where your right. I guess miseducation or uh, lack of power education came from I think like as Latinos you know we're never really pushed into the arts we're always like you know right. hey you know if you're a plumber or, or if you're an electrician or mechanics make good money but art is never seen as the like the other option right so what what yeah. propelled well, uh, you for that well i mean uh, as you sort of mentioned right is that students are sort of uh students of color are sort of tracked into these vocational uh careers like you know being a mechanic a plumber uh, a two-year degree somewhere um, but you know the unfortunate part about that is that the reason because of that is because of the uh, under-resourced programming right that title one schools uh, don't have uh, or at, that they actually underfunded resources that they do have right unfortunately they can offer more than one or two art classes um, so I'm sorry. Uh, what was the question again? What What made you just go? I'm gonna go back to okay. fucking yeah. Jefferson High School and teach where I came from, knowing right. that shit right. was lax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think one of the reasons why I wanted to go back to Jefferson High School was for that particular reason of addressing some of the needs that I didn't receive, some of the opportunities that that I wasn't able to take advantage of. And so I said to myself, and, and I'm not going to lie and say that I lived there my whole life. No, I moved out when I got the chance. But when I became an educator, I, I went back to, to really start something at Jefferson High School. Uh, and, and so one of the things that I did, right, my first couple of years is kind of get the hang of it. Because for a teacher, if you don't survive the first three years, you, you, you know, there's a there's a turnover it's not meant for you uh, because a lot yeah because a lot of teachers get burned out the first couple of years um, and so after I, I kind of got over that hump I started really thinking about uh, how I can develop or start developing an art program that that really supports students right not not just by becoming uh, better artists um, but I, I actually started thinking about, you know, those first three years, I saw so much talent filtered through, through my classrooms. And unfortunately, I couldn't teach students or uh, another art class because I didn't have another art class to offer. And on top of that, the A through G requirements, right, um, in the state of California, only require students to take one year of art for graduation, right? Other than that, you have three years of science, you have four years of math, four years of English, two years of history, right? But the arts 
you only take it for one year and you don't have to take anything else and so i started um sort of talking with administrators and saying hey look man there's a lot of kids with talent in here um that would i, I would love to have them for another art class and develop their talents right and have them prepare portfolios to to apply for art schools right and you know aside from that at least get that college culture going um you know establishing that college going culture uh and and provide students with more career choices um and so i think little by little right they they started seeing how much students would respond to my classes and and so ultimately um my classes did not become classes where students could become better artists uh, my, my classes eventually became um, classes where I was using arts to develop the social consciousness of my students, right? So if I taught my students about perspective drawing, one of their assignments was to take a empty lot in the neighborhood, right? Because after the 1992 riots, there were so many empty lots left in the neighborhood. Buildings. Yeah, a lot of, from the burned down buildings is that I, I told students, okay, your research is going to be to, to, to look for an empty lot in the community. And now that you know how to use perspective drawing, you're going to pretend that you're a developer and you're going to design what this new lot uh, is going to be. And you're going to present it to administrators or, you know, just pretend that you're presenting it to to a group of, of uh, city council city council members. Um, and, and so it, it's sort of things like that that I started doing right and, and started connecting arts and what they were learning in the classroom uh, and using it to think about improving their own communities. So to answer your question, right, it was kind of long, but that's just one example uh, of why I kind of went back to Jefferson High School. Perfect. Let's talk about social consciousness, because I, I'm sure that you sort of knew the background and sort of knew the things that were going on in your community. But where we intersected was we met in college and mm -hmm. we met at Santa Monica College, to be exact. We were part of a, a Latino club called Clue. And I remember mm -hmm. I remember very early on when I joined, you were there. And so I think that like you were doing this kind of work back in the day because we also, I don't know if you remember, we went on a lot of college visits before we had a college trip. So the club would have these college trips where you would have, you, where you would take students in community colleges to you know check out the big universities. But before that, we were the ones right. that went and sort of did the work, like the background work, like to figure out what school we were gonna see and who we were gonna connect to right. it. I remember one time we connected mm -hmm. at Stanford with a, a woman who was not only Mexicana, but she was pregnant and her parents had been mm -hmm. farm workers from nearby. So um, uh, that's sort of where we intersected. Um, and I remember that you were part of the club and, and that we did a lot of things that, you know, supported the community. We also did a lot of things to sort of like uh, open up our consciousness on who we were as people right. and what we were supposed to be doing to protect our social justice. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, that's one of the things that sort of 
developed my own identity, right, is, is you know, once I graduated uh, from high school, uh, I went straight to Santa Monica College. And even though I had gotten accepted into a few universities, you know, as a first generation Latino, I, I had no clue about the college going process. And I was like, I'm not going to San Diego State. Like, I don't even know anyone over there. Where am I going to go live? Right. And, and so no one really reached out to me even at Sacramento from uh, San Diego State to say, hey, Luis, you know, uh, is there anything we can help you with? It was just at the time it was letter after letter after letter. And I had no clue on to what I was doing. And I just said, I'm going to stay local. Uh, but one of the things that uh, honestly helped me navigate uh, college and, and it took me, what, uh, four years, right, to 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 transfer or, or to complete my my AA degree uh, at Santa Monica College. But one of the things that helped me develop consciously was uh, taking my art classes with Professor Ron Davis, uh, who unfortunately is no longer with us, right? He, he passed away uh, earlier, earlier th um, last year or this year. Um, but it was him who kind of invited me to use my own cultural knowledge uh, because he knew I grew up in South Central and, and so he he accepted that as an asset in his classroom, right? And so, you know, aside from that, right, me developing an identity through my own work and also getting involved with Club Latino United for Education uh, was really the groundwork and the foundation to, to my developing my social consciousness um, and so I wasn't all hardcore about that uh, until until I read the book Pedagogy of the Oppressed by uh, Brazilian educator and scholar Paulo Freire um, who was exiled from Brazil um, and he was accused of being a communist for trying to help uh, illiterate adults to read and write so that the government wouldn't take advantage of them. Um, so it wasn't until then, right, that I read his book that I started making the connections between uh, education, uh, between the community, uh, between art uh, and, and the, the political climate that, that we were living in. Um, and, and so, you know, it, there, there were just so many things going on, you know, and, and straight out of high school, we were dealing with, um, I believe it was P Proposition 187, yes. around 1994, 1995, 1996. We were part of that uh, uh, group of students that were, you know, uh, being politically uh, active in, in, you know, pushing back against uh, against that that uh injustice uh, oppression. political yeah, yeah targeting yeah. like that political agenda yeah, right that targeted communities yeah. of color yeah, yeah we also went right. to and, and so that? uh i don't think i i actually went okay because a group of, a group of us went to watsonville to support the united farm workers to get clean water and bathrooms when they were working right. in the fields and those were the strawberry workers mm -hmm. that we were uh there to right. help out yeah yeah and, and so yeah i mean it was just the the whole college trip um the organizing the college trip that that we sort of were involved in 
and helping our colleagues at the community college transfer, right, to, to consider transferring to any of these schools in, in Northern California. You know, I didn't think about it up until now, you know, but like, I, I didn't even, I didn't even think that I was being an activist then, right? It was just something that I was doing because I was involved in the club. Um, but one of the things that I kind of also remember is um, the organizing that we did uh, for, um, what was it called? What was the event called where we would bring high school students to Santa Monica College uh, so that they can attend workshops that would prepare them and inform them about the college going process. I, don't, uh, I forget what it was yeah, called. I don't remember that. But I do remember us having them come in like a whole, was it a whole weekend, right? It was, it was like, college, yeah, it was I a think whole... they called it college day or something. And it was like, they came for a whole weekend and they right. would sit in workshops with people and they would mm -hmm. try to help them sort of get to the next level. I guess all the things that we didn't get, you know, like, you know, yeah. I got, I like you got accepted to a couple of state colleges. And instead of going there, because I just kind of got confused about the system, I went to Santa Monica. And also because right. it was kind of expensive to take a class at state where I could take one at a community level and still get the same class, but for like 36 bucks a unit, which was what Santa Monica at the time was, you know, charging for, for a class. And I felt like that was much more of a thing for us, but I didn't really have somebody saying, hey man, like, this is what you need for the next class. This is what you need for this. What I what I got from the whole situation was that, you know, like you got to figure out how to get to school or else you just, you know, whatever. Whereas, you know, community college was a little bit more inviting, like here, fill this out. This is what you need to do. You have a counselor, you have that. Uh, but I remember college day because I remember that we all had jobs, like we all had to go either give kids tours or we would take a group from one class to another class or some people were in charge of food or whatever um, you have great memory like Ron Davis I haven't thought about that man in a long time and I remember he was so yeah. instrumental of like guiding people and always like sort of saying things when you needed to hear it to kind of guide you into a certain right. way he was also another reminder of like you should pursue art like if you're so good at this you should and that's the one thing he kind of just like threw at me like why aren't you doing what you should be doing you know like right. and that kind of was like a slap in the face like a wake-up call like dude what are you doing you're wasting time here go do that yeah. you know he always had a way of kind of <laughs> guiding you in his own words right right yeah no absolutely you know i didn't think about it uh, about everything that i was doing uh until you mentioned it right but even in college i was doing all of that and i didn't consider myself an activist back then but you know goes to show yeah definitely what one of the things that always struck me about you and i have to bring it up was that um when i first met you um after you started speaking um i knew you were mexicano uh, chicano mexicano but before that uh i think i saw you and you had like fancy nice tennis shoes and I thought you were a white kid coming to our club. And I was like, oh, look at this white boy. Like, he's going to join the Latino club. That's cool. Like, you know, I'm always for, like, having people who are not from my culture come and introduce them to my culture, which is why, one of the reasons why I did this podcast. I wanted to introduce everybody to all our cultures of all the brown folk around. Um, but I thought you were white. And then you started talking. Yeah. And, you know, like that saying in Spanish, you know, el, el no palsa te nota. 
you know you right. you can tell that you're you can tell that you're a mexican so so right um you know my brother was also very light-skinned when he was growing up how was it to be a light-skinned chicano mexicano growing up in la um well i mean even even if i take it back to high school right um uh, i like how can i say this even when i was in high school uh i was considered a, a gabacho just because of my light skin and at the time when i had hair right i had hair up to my shoulders um and, and so you know a lot of people at the high school thought i was white and they'd be like oh you know this is white kid in south central like i even remember one of my teachers um saying like oh wow i, I you know i've never seen this is the first time i see a white kid here <laughs> right and, and so okay, it was just funny right but um like even when i was in the baseball team right that, that kind of made me understand that i was uh, always confused or, or always th thought of as a gabacho because um literally some of my team members thought i was white and they started calling me cracker ah right just for that reason right and so it it stuck right since the ninth grade right we i had some of the same uh teammates some of my teammates in some of my classes and they would refer to me as cracker in my classes then the rest of my classmates would start calling me cracker and then it got to the point where by my junior year everyone knew me as cracker including the teachers and the principal yeah. right um and so I, I never you know i never thought of it as demeaning right because as mexicanos right we grow up uh, understanding that if you get called a certain nickname it's because there's that uh community that you've been building yeah. right with, with the crowds that you're hanging around with right if you get a nickname with whatever group that you're a part of you've bonded with that group so that's kind of how i saw you know them calling me cracker all the time uh, but it was always respectful right it wasn't it wasn't like it was uh uh demeaning or racist or anything yeah. like that i mean in some groups cracker could be could seem racist to to uh maybe white people don't like being called cracker and i understand that nobody likes to be called something that has a negative right. connotation i think um yeah it, it's not as bad as the n-word and other stuff um i think the n-word is probably one of those things that you can't do it's not bad as like spick or so forth because those are just more racial lines that are sort of demeaning and have been right. used to you know start laws and and to start riots and to lynch people um but for those of you guys who don't know what gabacho means it just means like white boy or you know or you know blondie or whatever um i know a yeah. lot of there's a lot of things in spanish that that people say to other people as a joke to sort of put you in a different place pocho uh gabacho wero mm -hmm. you know they used to call my brother little mm -hmm. wero um stuff like that that puts you in a place where like if you're light-skinned mexican or light-skinned latino you're not part of us kind of thing yeah. just the same way yeah. that like you know dark skin you know uh mexicans and latinos are called different names as well you know we all kind of get our own little nicknames um mine was colocho which meant curly because i had curly hair um back in that day a lot of people weren't really great with afro latinos didn't even know we existed um i also know that 
back when we were growing up, our community wasn't as connected and united with um, our black neighbors, our black friends. Um, I think there was some animosity. You know, whenever a new culture comes into the landscape, like in the 80s where the Central Americans started moving into L.A., you know, Mexicans and, and Central Americans didn't really get along. Right. And I know there was a lot of animosity um, with black and Latino and the way that Latinos and Mexicanos would, you know, say horrible things to black people and, you know, even Afro-Latinos who right. they didn't know were Latinos, but were black. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, and yeah, I think one of the things that I really appreciated about South Central is that when I became part of these communities uh, in school, like the baseball team or even the football team and the volleyball team, right, is that we built community with our African-American brothers. Um, and so that's one thing that I really appreciated about Jefferson High School, right, is that we had the opportunity to share this space with, you know, other uh, ethnic groups like African-Americans and even Central Americans. Um, you know, and, and one of the things that I would constantly see uh, was this animosity that, that there was uh, when we would play these other schools, right? Sometimes the Latino schools like Cunningham Park or even Southgate, uh, Bell as well, um, they, they would call us Latinos, right? Uh, you know, and N-word lovers, right? Because we went to school with African-Americans, right? And, and, and I'm like, dude, what the hell? Like, we're, yeah. we, you know, we're both Latinos. Like, how, how can you like say something like that? And, and he's like, well, we don't like, uh, you know, black people. And, you know, it was just like this understanding, right? That, that there was anti-blackness even in Latino communities. Um, you know, and, and it just, it, it developed a sense of, I don't know, uh, confusion, right? And in, in the idea of what it meant to be uh, Latino or, or, you know, I don't know, to, to, to live amongst uh, other ethnic groups. And, and I just, I don't know, like it, it I always disagreed with, with, with that, uh, a way of thinking, right? With, with when we would play other schools and they would spit at our teammates, they would spit at us, um, you know, and, and it was just, you know, this, I don't know. I, I mean, it, it wasn't, it, it was a horrible experience for me to see that from other Latino groups, um, you know, and, and of course, right, we had built so much community with, with our African-American brothers and sisters that we, we were, you know, it, it gave me this sense of community, right, with African-Americans. So, I mean, I've always appreciated that. The anti-blackness has been uh, a really bad sort of character in, in our community. And I think that, you know, the same goes for anti-trans. Um, and I think that those are things that we sort of need to stop and we need to acknowledge, um, you know, just because, you know, we were hanging out with black kids didn't make us any lower than anybody else um but i think that there was a lot of misunderstandings between each culture that we didn't talk about like nowadays when there's attacks on a lot of the um street vendors 
people will turn around and say stuff like, oh, you know, like, let's get these uh, black people and let's do this thing. And it's like, first of all, maybe the person who did that is black, but I don't think it's all black people that are trying to attack street vendors. I think it's these just assholes and people that are jerks that are like, oh, I'm going to go mess with somebody who's working and, and doing this stuff. And I think that those are the those are the situations that we put ourselves into. Turning it into a race thing is right. so easy and such a cop out that we don't realize the real issue. The real issue is right. that we've been told to separate so we can fight amongst each other instead of uniting and becoming a force that people can't mess with. Right. They, you know, there's powers that be that want us separated. You know, there's people that really want us not to be together. So it's easier for them to control us. You know, uh, when it's you know. When if we got together, then it'd be a completely different story. So, you know, I always tell people, this is not a us against you or, you know, them against, uh, you know, it's basically if all minorities got together, we can solve a lot of problems. The reason why the United Farm Workers were able to solve a lot of their problems because black farmers, white farmers, and even Filipino farmers helped the United Farm Workers get to where they got. And it wouldn't have happened if none of them got together. Right. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of those problems can be solved by us just kind of uniting and being like, look, enough with this racist tones. But yeah, I think we have to atone and apologize for, you know, our anti-blackness that we had in the past. I think that you brought up a good point. Um, and as a teacher and an artist, you know, uh, your murals, I feel like, have a lot to do with, uh, you know, culture and us and where we came from. And I know that you do a lot of immigrant sort of uh, focus work. Um, I also saw your Loteria collection, which I thought was great. Um, what other things do you think are important for young students to learn when they're making art, especially when it has a lot to do with who we are as people? Right. Uh, I think that one of the more important things about you know teaching is being able to use the funds of knowledge of students and uh, what I what I mean what I refer to when I say the funds of knowledge uh, I'm talking about the experiences and the knowledge that students bring from home uh, like whatever our parents know how to do like if my dad was a mechanic if my mother was a, a, a maintenance worker um, you know that's uh, that's something that educators need to acknowledge as academic knowledge uh, or academic information in in, uh, in in our own classrooms right and for that particular reason right we need to figure out how to use that information in our classrooms uh, to to develop the understanding of whatever academic uh, content we're teaching so I, I think the more important part is you know, for educators to really understand that we need to use the knowledge that students bring into the classroom because oftentimes we don't recognize that as academic language. We don't recognize that as, as an asset. And we have so much, so much to learn from our students. And, and not only that, right, we can use that knowledge to make our teaching, whatever subject we're teaching, to make it relevant to their lives. And then they'll be able to understand the whole process of photosynthesis, right? Especially if their parents are, are either farm workers or gardeners, 
um, you know, that, that has a lot to do with photosynthesis. Um, and, and also, right, teaching them about the history of their communities uh, through a historical perspective, right? And, and understanding why in South Central, why South Central has, has such a rich African-American history. Well, because before 1938, that was the only place that African-Americans were allowed to live, right? There was a redlining that existed then. Uh, and, and if students understand that, they're gonna start understanding why these communities uh, were so impoverished, impoverished and how that affects them today. Definitely. I feel like you hit on a good point. You said educational language. Mm -hmm. And that also coexists with, you know, generational trauma. You know, a lot of these people, these students that are coming into the schools, you know, come from a neighborhood that may not have a lot of resources because it was originally a black neighborhood. And black people were sort of pigeonholed into places where they're like, okay, you stay there and that's where you can buy a house. And also, you know, if you come over here, this is the way you're going to be treated. And the same way with Latino and Mexican immigrants, when they were coming down, they were, you know, they already knew that they could only live in certain neighborhoods. And sometimes they would have to live in black neighborhoods because they were trying to make sure that, you know, they stayed away from the law. Uh, A lot of them being immigrants were afraid of their status and being interned into the INS. And, you know, there's so many generational trauma and academic language that comes with these students that that can be turned into fuel for whatever creation can come out of it. Um, But let me go into your academic language that you brought in when you went to school. And um, you went to USC, am I correct? Yeah, I I went to USC to get my master's in public art. So tell me how, because USC has had some issues in the past and, and, you know, they, they also have some issues recently about, um, you know, accreditation and people leaving their master's program, especially in the arts. How was it going to a school like that? And it's a good school, but like, were they ready for someone, Mexicano, Chicano, muralist that wanted to do something in, in the arts? Um... I, you know, I think I can speak based on my experience, but uh, I think, no, they weren't, uh, you know, here are a few things that happened. Uh, I originally wanted to get my MFA, my master's in fine arts. And given my background, right, that I'm this Chicano from South Central, um, I had no former art schooling prior to that, right? I had a bachelor's in art education from Cal State LA. Um, But I really wanted to get an MFA so that I'd be able to teach art at at the college level. So I applied to the MFA and I was informed, you know what, Uh, this program is very competitive. Uh, would you consider also applying to the Masters of Public Art Studies? We see that you have uh, a lot of public art experience, you know, working on murals, exhibits, uh, uh, local uh, community festivals, uh, and they, they pretty much sort of, they wanted me there, but not in their MFA. Right, and so and so, I saw it as that they're giving me another option because they don't want me in the MFA. Uh, and, and you know, given I, I think also right that I was a first-generation student, 
um, I kind of saw it as, you know what? Well, you're still going to SE. It's in the same program. Yeah. But I didn't understand that with my public art degree, you know, I assumed I it would it would acknowledge my uh, academic knowledge in being a public artist, right? Uh, and and so I didn't quite understand that it, the public art studies degree didn't necessarily work that way. Uh, it was more of an administrative uh, for an administrative career in public art. Yeah. Right, like working for the Department of Cultural Affairs, and and I said I don't want to sit behind a desk. I want to be doing the damn work, right? Yeah, um, and, and so that was that was sort of the beginning part of it, right? Uh, when I was working on my dissertation, I was being steered into uh, doing my thesis on some white artists that. You know, I had no background or I, I found no relevance to. Um, and over the summer, I was kind of being pressured into, oh, do it on this artist. You know, you should focus on this. You should focus on that. And then I got so frustrated with that process that I was like, you know what? Fuck this. Right. I'm I'm an educator. I'm an artist in the community. Right. That I grew up in. I'm going to do my thesis on how I use public art as a tool in my classes, right? And I pretty much broke down how I taught art and used the knowledge of the, the, the community uh, to address issues in the community through public uh, art displays developed by students. Uh, and so that was sort of what I created. But even even during my dissertation process, a lot of the uh, faculty were questioning my change in focus because it didn't reflect right their uh, their mission. Um, and and you know they were pretty much concerned with oh well your contributions to public art you know aren't necessarily within the mission of of. Uh, of our mission right and and so i'm like you know what this is the work that i do this is this is what i'm contributing to usc right you're in a community that's predominantly latino and black and you want me to focus on white artists when i should be focusing on the people that live in this community um and that's what i'm doing right i'm giving you something that's produced by us and for us right and if it doesn't fit your mission then i can you know talk to the dean of the college to see you know how how that plays out and then in the end they're like well you know what it's because we're not too familiar with the theorists that you're using and i was using educational theory i was using public art theory um you know and in short they were not comfortable with who Paulo Freire was and, and why I wasn't using his work in a, a dissertation that has to do with public art, right? When the whole point of that was to, to make students socially conscious of their own community and how they can navigate and transform their communities through public art. Um, 
And so in the end, I kind of didn't have support. You know, I was kind of like told, okay, well, you're going to do it by yourself because we're not familiar with, with this, uh, uh, you know, with this educational theorist. Um, but, you know, that, that's how it went. But then here I am, and what, a couple of years later in 2017, I ended up getting a PhD from Claremont where I kind of continued my work, right? And, and so um, just to give you an idea of, of how it went for me at USC. It's ironic that USC was trying to push a white artist on you when they have so much to pull from just across the street from them. Right. You know, USC is, is, you know, some people dub it the you know, University of South Central because it's literally in South Central. Right. I mean, across the street from it is, is CAM, C-A-M, which is the uh, California African-American Museum, right. mm -hmm. um, which showcases amazing artists. Uh, you know, you have, you know, muralists in the neighborhood that have been putting stuff up for years. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, how can you not acknowledge that there's so much art and so much work being done in the community alone which you don't have to go far if you're an administrator of usc you right. just literally have to go across the street right i mean i always feel funny when art schools try to find a place for you to be because they don't understand you mm -hmm. and they want you to conform to their little like if you fit in this slot you know then this will help us out to see who, what you do when in actuality it's like you know no like nobody you know right. what artist can fit in a box you know what what muralist or street artist or you know sculptor anybody can fit in a box for you it doesn't work that way you have to acknowledge where they're coming from and their influences no matter where they come from whether you know latino or i mean we live in an age where you can just pop on the computer and find out who this latino artist is or who this muralist is and, and i think we have enough culture and enough people enough reverence to to make it part of the academia and i think a lot of schools are sort of non-conformist when it comes to that kind of stuff which is ironic because an art school is supposed to be a, a non-conformist place to educate yourself not only in the arts but in the creating of the arts right right yeah i mean it, it, here here's with that where that freeway divide i mentioned earlier right um understanding that the east side from in south central is referred to anything uh in within the 90011 area anything that's east of the 110 freeway right and so past the 110 freeway you have figueroa right which is us where usc is off of uh is it jefferson and figueroa right um yeah. It, it, once you pass the 110 freeway, you're on the west side of, of, of what's considered, or, or, you know, we're talking about urban street talk. Uh, you're in the west side of, of, uh, of Los Angeles, right, of, of the south central area of Los Angeles. Uh, but you can see the big divide, right, between south central and past the 110 freeway. You know, it, it's a different whole new neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, to, to, to a lot of people, once you get past King, that's deep South Central. And that's mm -hmm. because that's right before, you know, the new a LAFC Stadium, right. you know, the, the Coliseum. Those are things that people still acknowledge. They're like, oh, yeah, we go there. But past that, you don't go there. But for some, pe some reason, people 
ignore the fact that there's this huge freeway on the left of that, right? Heading east, and that neighborhood is sort of like an unknown neighborhood, right? Right. You know, and it gets ignored a lot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and so you know, I think even USC has a family of five schools,、uh, schools that they work with, right, within the South Central area.、Um, But from my understanding, it's it's not any of the schools that are located on the east side of the 110. They're all located on the west side of the 110. So it goes to show, right, where they want to、uh, maintain their regional involvement, right? That their yeah the region that they want to work with is west of the 110. I mean, you you could see it clearly from their development. They bought buildings all around, yeah. But they won't go on the other side of the freeway. They'll skate the freeway right next to it as much as possible, but they <laughs> they won't build anything on the east of the freeway, and、uh, you know, a couple of blocks. I mean, they own a lot of property down there. They they own a lot of property on Adams, and、right. Hoover. They you know they own property everywhere. But right, it's funny that a school like that does not acknowledge the fact that they are in. A very highly black and Latino community, right? And、yeah. they should be funneling all that creative cultural power into their school, right?、Um, you know, especially even like in their medical, you know, they they had their hospital, the UC hospitals, in the smackdown of East LA, yeah. And so,、right. you know, there should be more involvement with that school and the community because they serve the community so much that it's like, why wouldn't you want to? Learn more about the culture and have the culture、right. more, especially even in the arts. You know, there、right. any little way that you can connect to a community helps you get closer to them. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm not gonna lie or, or say that they haven't made those efforts because I know they have,、uh, and I know that they have a, a dental free dental program, dentistry program. Uh, they also have other programs where they kind of mentor students throughout high school,、uh, and they pretty get, pretty much get a four year、uh, four year scholarship, right, to to attend USC.、Uh, so they have, you know, I can't name them all, but they do have a number of programs.、Uh, but as you mentioned, right,、uh, rather than focusing on creating a bridge. More of a bridge, right, between the Latino community in which they're in,、uh, they sort of become like this institution that limits who comes in, right? Because of, of the amount of property they've been buying in that neighborhood, they've been gentrifying this neighborhood since, you know, for for the last twenty years. Yeah,、um, it's even yeah. I mean, they they bought houses, they bought apartment buildings, right? Mean, they pretty much own everything. Right and and you know I, I remember that the property where there is currently now、uh, on it's on Hoover and Jefferson right、uh, where the new Trader Joe's was built the new student housing complex was built、um, that used to be a a community market、um, village called Thirty Second Street Market. Uh, but it was also called the University Village, right? So even then,、uh, they they kind of anchored their name on there as the University Village. But、uh, you know, rather than being sort of a resource or an anchor that would help the community in different ways, 
they've sort of have become this, I don't know, uh, corporate presence. Um, but yeah, they're helping, they're helping some students, right, uh, with resources uh, and, and students and families with different resources. But it, it's still, right, it still feels like this uh, alienating place uh, because there's security now uh, surveilling who gets to come in right at certain hours of the day you can't go into the university campus uh, you can't get go into the ice cream shops that were developed within that new housing complex uh, and again right it's just this they set boundaries right um, within the same community and and so that goes to show how much work there needs to be done and this is this is so important too because it has a lot to do with you know the the sort of makeup of the city um one is education you know they're the gatekeepers and they only allow certain people Thank private you. schools tend to have those powers where they're like you know yeah people want to go to those schools who doesn't want to go to the ucla you know medical center and who doesn't want to go to you know law school and at usc and so it's like these are the gateways that people have to pass through but not only that, it's the gentrification, the effect that the school as a monolith, because it, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and spreading right. and spreading. The effects of gentrification on that community, there was a Latino community, because that was a really poor, cheap place to live. And you can afford to actually buy a house and you can afford to actually get a two bedroom apartment for a family of five. And, you know, now it's sort of being taken over by this monolith again and then they decide to close doors at a certain time or only for students right and so now you're taking over the community and people that still live in the community will be like oh i want to go here but i can't because it's only for usc students right and so yeah. now you created walls within walls mm -hmm. to not to sort of tell people like funnel them out and be like oh you don't belong here so right. not only are you gentrifying a neighborhood but now you're also like guiding people out like oh no 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 this is not for you this right. is not for you. Yeah. Here's a Trader Joe's. This is not for you. You right. know, it's 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 happened before, and I think that LA is so notorious for that. I mean, I mean, we're wearing LA hats right now, and you know, our kingdom stands on the ashes of you know Chavez, Chavez Ravine, Ravine neighborhood. Yeah. And Chavez Ravine, you know, a Mexican neighborhood where a lot of people lived and had their homes and were not lived there just because they were poor because they were generational houses that they had lived there for a long time their grandmas were there and then suddenly you know we had a bid at the you know brooklyn dodgers and so we just bulldozed that place down right. yeah and there's yeah. pictures and there's a book and there's information about how the sheriffs the cops lapd just whoop, took all these people out kicking and screaming out of their own neighborhood so we can build something they became bigger and bigger and bigger again right another monolith that takes over and we also tell people no no you can't come here this is for certain people right right uh, yeah i mean I, I even uh in my in my latest body of work right that i titled um cruising la's political landscape i actually referenced that um the the eviction of the chavez ravine families um you know and, and i sort of you know in 2017, right, uh, the Dodgers had the chance of winning the World Series uh, after so many years, right? And people were so focused on that, that even when they lost, 
um, you know, as much as I am a, of a fan, right, I, I do understand the the history of, of the team, right, uh, and, and the history of the Chavez Ravine families. Um, and, and so I, I continue to criticize, right, that that process that, that happened. Uh, but but with, within that work that I mentioned, right, I highlight how the Chavez, uh, the Arrechiga family's mother was dragged out of the house uh, by members of the LAPD and Sheriff's Department. Um, but in the foreground of that image, I have a 1959 uh, Cadillac uh, kind of cruising through the front of the house, right? And so that kind of refers to the idea of cruising LA's political landscape in 1959. So you have a 1959 Cadillac in the front that's cruising, right? And the political landscape is in the background and it's a Rechiga family being dragged out of their Chavez Ravine home before it was bulldozed. Uh, so speaking to that, right, I'm, I'm always, again, critical, right? Drawing from our own history. Uh, and yeah, let's talk about the Dodgers, but I'm not going to let you forget that. Oh, no, I, I, I'll try to tell people as much as possible, especially friends that don't, that are not from this neighborhood. You know, I, mm -hmm. I've mentioned it more than once, even on the podcast, but I've also... I love talking to people when, when we go to Dodger Stadiums and I'm like, Do you, you know, you know that this was built on top of somebody's neighborhood right. and yeah. it was a Latino, a Mexican neighborhood that was here and they were just excused so they can build this for us right. for, well, back in the day for, you know, white affluent families, not Latino families. Right. Um, you know, the fact that Latinos have been moved around the city is not a new thing. You know, we've been here a very, very long time before there was borders And before it was named California, and we've been we've been always here, you know, in the suit suit riots. You know, we couldn't walk around the street wearing our own dresses or the way we wanted to dress because we were being attacked by servicemen and police and um, you know white nationalists. And you know, we couldn't live in certain neighborhoods, so we were pushed around. And we, that's how we ended up in East LA and Boyle Heights. That's how we ended up in South Central from the '80s and the you know the. Pico Union District in the you know in the late 80s and 90s you know there's there's reason why pockets of Latinos are in certain areas and now with gentrification we're being pushed around again you know and so who knows where we're going to end up to make way for something beautiful um, I you know I live here in Highland Park and, and I've noticed that certain places you know people have been moved out and there's certain the same names of companies and developers are going around LA building stuff and they're trying to build here now And, you know, they're they're not making homes for, for me and you or for, you know, the Latino families that are already here. They're making places to live for somebody who will spend a $3,000, you know, monthly bill or a $4,000 monthly bill. And, you know, L.A. has always been known to push its people around. And I think in some neighborhoods, it, it, it's done it really well. In other neighborhoods, you know, people are not leaving. They're just like not going to go anywhere. Um, but... That is the story of L.A. I mean, we're constantly moving people around. Uh, look at South Central. I mean, I remember South Central was really black and had some pockets of Latinos. And now South Central is a lot Latino and less black. And now Inglewood is less black and more white. And so it's like every every neighborhood. I mean, Compton, look at Compton's turnaround. Compton is predominantly now a Mexican neighborhood. Right. And, you and know, was, there's a lot of white and it was white at one point. It was white at one point, and there, uh, there's even the Klan was in 
Compton. The, the KKK was in Compton, and then it became a black neighborhood, so the KKK had to find somewhere else to go. And then Latinos started moving in, and now it's becoming more of a Mexican neighborhood than it is a black neighborhood. So this city is is known very well for moving people around. It's a people mover. And when it doesn't fit, you know, the stereotype of what this city is going to be. I mean, Compton is his own municipal city, but they're still, I mean, I still consider that L.A. Um, you know, L.A. goes as far as, you know, Montebello, I think, to me, and all the way to the ocean, <laughs> you know, and even Lancaster. I mean, you could consider that still L.A., you know, but. You know, we, we're just moving people around so much to fit some kind of facade or, you know, and that's the one thing that I want people to understand when they move to L.A. Like, you know, it's rare to find local natives from L.A. because we've been pushed around so much. Right. right. Um, one of the things that I kind of wanted to ask you, too, is that how is it to be how hard is it to be a, you know, Mexicano male in the educational system teaching you know people to be artists and, and maybe having some focuses like uh, Chicano arts right well um, I, you know I, I can talk about you know what my experience has, has been like since I started here at Sacramento State um, you know and as, as a con uh, socially conscious educator one of the things I don't try to do is alienate students with my own biases, right? Um, one of the things that I try to do, right, is to draw on students' funds of knowledge, something I mentioned before, right? And, and the funds of knowledge are pretty much the knowledge that students bring into the classroom. Uh, and, and so as an educator, as a Latino Chicano educator, I try to focus on that because uh, the funds of knowledge really isn't ethnic, ethnically focused, right? They're not they're not uh, centralized on a particular ethnic group or anything like that. And so I think that the funds of knowledge provide me with the opportunity to draw on student knowledge to develop their understanding of art, art education. Um, and, you know, the, the structures, right, that sort of contribute to inequality in art education. Um, and so given that you have a diverse uh, amount of students or a diverse group of students, they, they tend to develop uh, an understanding of the inequality that exists in art education, right, based on their own experiences. And so I always invite students in my classes to discover or develop their understanding of positionality. Right? And, and positionality is a way in which we have experienced the world and what sort of guides us, right? And it's the assumptions that we have based on our experiences that influence our teaching, that influence the way we see uh, and, we, and we read the world. Um, and, and so by getting students to understand their positionality, uh, which may perhaps be a privileged positionality, right? Which may be an underprivileged positionality. I have them understand that despite what ethnic background or socioeconomic background they come from, as educators, we have that privilege the moment we step into the classroom. Um, so, you know, I just try to 
have them understand their positionality regardless of what ethnic group and socioeconomic background they come from um, as a way of understanding who they're going to teach, how they're going to teach, uh, and as a way to understand their own career and position as an educator. That's amazing. I mean, you know, it's, it's that saying, like, until you walk a mile in my shoes. Um, but I feel like you can learn anything from anybody as right. long as you know where they're coming from. And I think that in order to be a better artist, in order to be a better creator, mm-hmm. that having the ability to soak in everybody else's knowledge of every culture or, or every insight it doesn't even have to be cultural because, you know, you don't think white people are, are not always just going to always, you know, oh, I only like white art. That, that's not a, that's not a thing. You know, people love art. They love art. Um, but Latinos sometimes will be like, well, I don't understand that. And and I don't see that. And I think as educators, it's great to be like, let's all put it in a pool. Let's all get something from everybody right. and figure this out. And I think that's another way of also, you know, if we're going to live in cities where we're going to gentrify, where gentrification is sort of the effect of, of the new economy, then we're going to have to get along and get to know each other. You know, we all have to sort of, the way that you're using that for your education, I think it's important for us to use it as in our social life. You know, it's like you believe in social justice and you want to hold up signs and put them outside your house and say Black Lives Matter. Like, if you ain't got no black friends or you ain't got no brown friends, you're kind of missing the point. You got to get out there and start to get to know right. people and really realize what they go through on a daily basis. You know, right. I know myself and you, you know, we've been stopped by the police sometimes for what we can think of no effing reason. There's not a reason why in a rhyme or anything. And, you know, it's just a thing that happens and it's not, we don't see it as like, oh no, oh my God, you know, it, it to me uh, now at a point, it's like, okay, what now? You know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. You know, I had a friend who got stopped and he was like, I couldn't believe they stopped me. Like, there was no reason I didn't do anything. And I was like, but you have that privilege where you can say that. Right. You know, I I fit the profile of whatever crime they have on their, you know, list today. Right. You know, and, and you drive a lowrider, you can have, you know, there's 10,000 reasons why. I mean, you might have, they think that you might have drugs in your car or a gun right. or something, you know. And so this is the sort of the the cause and effect of how living while brown in america you know makes us the way we are and as an educator i feel like you know you should be proud of yourself that you're using everybody's resources to create a place where people look at this landscape it's so big and we can do so many things with it as long as we know the landscape right the other thing is like you know it it makes me feel really proud that i that i knew you when we were students and you know we were reading drink cultura and all these little books that we had around us and you went from, you know, student to USC to PhD candidate to PhD graduate. And now you're a professor, but you're now teaching people to teach this to other people. It's almost like you were the farmer and you, you learned how to like, you know, sow the ground and now you, you learn how to do the seeds. And then you got to the place where you started growing the vegetables. And now you're teaching other people to go plant seeds all around the world which is beautiful um and talking about seeds let me segue nicely into it you have a baby boy now right (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i i mean is there a lot of pressure 
into raising a young Latino Mexicano male? Um, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know. Um, there's, I mean, there's pressure for any parent to raise a child, but in the way the climate is right now, you know, I would feel like it's much heavier nowadays. Yeah. I mean, um, he, he's, he's going to be too, right? So I think right now, uh, our, that the way we're thinking about him is, if you want to call it baby steps, you know, because that's what we're focusing on. We're kind of teaching him how to communicate, how to ask for things, how to say I'm done, uh, how to behave, you know, and that's just right now. Uh, but I think the pressure for me and my wife is as he's getting older, um, you know, because here are two first generation Latinos, right? Two first generation PhDs that are raising a, a, Chica, uh, a Chicano uh, baby <laughs> to, to sort of process the world, right? Through our experiences. Um, so I think as conscious educators and conscious parents, yeah, I think there's a lot more pressure for us because of our educational background, right? And and sort of preparing our kid to challenge racism, to challenge oppressive structures. And, you know, I think, I don't know, it, it does sort of worry me, right? And how are we going to prepare him to navigate our, our political social climate? Um, because it hasn't changed, right, since since the era of the 30s. It hasn't it hasn't changed much. Um, you know, African Americans and Latinos continue to be targeted by uh, law enforcement, and you know, we've sort of normalized the stereotype that Latinos and African Americans are a threat to society, right? And, and the police continues to, to show that. So in thinking about it long term, I think, you know, it does worry me about how we can actually navigate parenting in a climate like this. That's interesting. I mean, you know, the future generations are going to have to deal with so much that we had to deal with before but it was never in the forefront and we weren't talking about it it was just something that like you said we normalize getting stopped by the police we normalize you know cops killing latino and black males uh and you know females too to this day uh we normalized a lot of the things that nowadays people are calling injustice and they're trying to fight for and you know it's funny that some nationalists some white nationalists are saying like oh this cancer culture all oh, this thing like why why are you guys why don't you guys let the past be the past because the past hasn't changed mm-hmm. you know we haven't changed from the time that we were growing up to now it has not changed it's still the same um and i feel like those are things that the next generation will definitely have to deal with but they'll be more educated and have all the weapons to do that with coming up in the future Uh, let me ask you, let's do the last thing that I wanted to do. 
And the last thing that I kind of wanted to hit on with you was word association. And it's just a little fun thing to end the, the episode with. Thanks again for being here. Thank you for your time. Uh, here we go. Lightning round. Nike Cortez. The Barrio. Uh, hoop earrings. Uh, Chola PhDs. <laughs> El Colmal. Tortillas. Uh, street Elotes. Uh, Kendrick Lamar eating an elote on a palm tree. Dang. Uh, Champurado. Not for me, but it, it gave you. me, it, it reminded me of, of people huddled around the tamalera. There you go, there you go. Yeah, not for me either. Raspados? Hot sunny day in LA. Nice. Uh, and Lucas Candy? Um, interesting. Is this the pelon? Yeah. Or, okay, yeah, yeah. It's just funny because everybody, when I say Lucas, everybody's like, there's a lot of people that have said pelon before because that's the right. one that they remember the most. Yeah. Right. Uh, tajin? Uh, pepino. And the most dreaded, La Chancla. Interesting. Uh, but now, you know, I have my, um, I don't know, my, my critically conscious perspective here. Uh, <laughs> no child abuse? <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I, I was going to say, yeah, no, 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 no violence. Um, yeah. But it, it's interesting that you say that because in one of my workshops, uh, where where I talk about the funds of knowledge, I would use La Chancla as an example of, uh, he, in a humorly way, right, as how La Chancla had, were, was different forms of funds of knowledge, um, like discipline, like healthy eating habits. Uh, but again, right, someone sort of uh, called me out uh, and talked about how La Chancla was a form of normalized violence in Latino families, right? And that yeah. they reflected the Latina woman as violent and angry. Um, it was, it and, was, a, it was a, a, a sign of threat if you didn't do yeah. something, you get the right. Chancla. Right. And, you know, I do remember that a lot. I feel like we also had other sayings that were so normalized, like, quieres papau? You yeah. would tell that to a young kid, which is basically, right. do you want to get hit? Right. You know, if you continue to do that, do you want to get hit? And right. it's not something that you would say normally out loud, but somehow Quieres Papao sounded really funny and everybody right. thought it was cute. But if you go to the meaning of it, it it's not it's not a nice thing right. to say. Yeah, I have a friend who's a, her name is Chula Face and she's an artist as well. And she has a t-shirt that says Quieres Papao, but she turned it on its head by putting, um, you know, those uh, leather kind of pads that people use for for fun spankings. Right, not right. the bad spankings, the good spankings. Yeah, so, <laughs> so and she put get his papa on it, which I thought was hilarious. But I mean, it still goes to the deep-rooted issue of, yes, this is a, a violent act that's going to be committed right. with this. Uh, right. Thank you so much for being part of the episode. Um, tell us where we can find your art, where we can see your work, where they can follow yeah. you. So uh, if you want to follow my work on Instagram, uh, I'm under the name uh, the the handle Barrio Profe, so B-A-R-R-I-O-P-R-O-F-E. And then my website is LuisGenaroGarcia.com, uh, L-U-I-S-G-E-N-A 
R-O-G-A-R-C-I-A, uh, LuisGenaroGarcia.com. I love your, your IG handle, though, Barrio Profe. That's like, <laughs> that's excellent. I mean, you went back to the hood to teach. You were a muralist in the neighborhood. And now you're teaching other people to do the same. And it's an excellent way to do it. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much, Luis Garcia. Thank you for coming. Um, we appreciate that. And for everybody else out there listening, we love you too. And uh, see you guys next time. Goodbye. All right. See you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Also follow us on Instagram. Leave a like, leave a comment, tell a friend, share our stories. And remember, if you don't see color, you don't see beauty.